It is I, Ismail. I wish to narrate to you today the town hall story, which has done much to heighten my fears of the object, the monstrosity of Moby Dick. Hello. Welcome to the 23rd episode of Night Reader Podcast. My name is Dylan C. I've got a very special episode for you today, where I'm bringing to life the entire story of the town hall. A standalone short story within the pages of Herman Melville's literary classic, Moby Dick. I thank you for being here with me, and I hope you enjoy the wonderful scenes. We last heard from our crew aboard the Pequod, as they had a gam with the Albatross, and then the Town Ho, both Nantucket vessels. We learned that the Town Ho houses a terrible story surrounding the object of Moby Dick, and is one that is scarcely known by the crew. Only a few ears have heard it, and Ishmael is one of those lucky pair. Now, as I said in the episode prior, the town hall is a standalone story and has been published by itself. And it reads very well on its own, but it also has a backstory involving Moby Dick, and some characters will show up later in the narrative. Now, with all that being said, we're going to jump back into the story, so hold your breath. You may remember that during the gam with the town hall, a few officers communicated this dark story to Tashchigo, the long-haired Indian harpooner. Most likely the men who communicated this to him were of the same genealogy and trusted him with the information. But eventually, back aboard the Pequod, Tashchigo revealed so much of the story while he was sleeping as an avid sleep-talker that in the morning, the rest of his crew in the forecastle forced the rest out of him. Still, it never left that forecastle and only a few men ever learned of the story. Not Ahab, or any of the mates would ever know. And Ishmael was one of the few to hear the story, which greatly heightened his fears. So in the Town Ho chapter, Herman speaks and tells us, for his humor's sake, he would like to preserve the style he once narrated it to his friends while he was in Lima. This is a sly way of him saying he wishes to convey pieces of his original story, and yet still have Ishmael as the narrator. So simply, Ishmael is going to tell us the story of the town hall by sharing with us the way he described it to his friends while relaxing in Lima, in Peru. To avoid more confusion, I'm not going to bounce back and forth between Ishmael's narration and the story, but rather, we will delve headlong into the story, which will be presented in an audio fiction type drama. Let's have a listen about what Ishmael has to say. It is I, Ishmael. Shipmate, I wish to narrate for you today the town hall story, which has done much to heighten my fears of the object, the monstrosity of Moby Dick. The town hall was a decent vessel. One day it was on a full cruise not far off from the equator. Now, most vessels of this kind are prone to taking on water in the lower decks. It's just part of the business. And for this, Sailors use a large man-powered pump that is above the deck, referred to as a chariot, and resembling a large spoked wooden wheel. The men would work this pump nearly every day to keep the ship free of the water. But the town hoe had been taking on more water than usual. They figured there was a large leak somewhere deep below, but they could not find it. 
Now, my friends, the captain of the town hall believed they were headed for a very prosperous journey. Did not want to quit the ocean due to this leak. And so the men rolled the chariot at long, easy intervals, keeping the ship free of excess water, and she would have returned to port without a single life lost, had it not been for the overbearing first mate that goes by the name of Radney. Now, shipmate, listener, this story features two main characters, one of them being Radney, the first mate, and the other being Steelkilt, a member of Radney's crew and therefore under his working control. Now, let me provide a short description of the men's countenance and personalities. Radney, the first mate, was a man born of the sea, living near the sea's entire life and being full of vengeful and social quarrel. He was quite a stout man, and yet some good nature resided within him. He was an odd-looking man, though, and not a glorious figure whatsoever. Then you have Steelkilt, or Steel, as I will often refer to him in the story, a member of the crew and under Radney's jurisdiction. Steelkilt was a lakeman from Buffalo. He was not born a man of the sea like Radney was, but rather has sailed all his life on the great freshwater lakes of the northern countries. And so this man was no green hand. No, not at all. He was built like an ox, had a flowing golden beard, was tall and noble, and had a hearty soul. Due to this, and the nature of things, Radney had a bit of a thing out for him. He disliked the man and everything about him, either out of jealousy or just the repeated embarrassment of having to command someone that is twice his size. Well, whatever it was, Radney all liked a single steel kill out all not all and try to pry at him even all more so. Sometimes, maybe subconsciously. He did not like the man, and Steel Kilt knew it. And so, over the course of a few weeks, the leak began to spring worse. One day, Steel and crew were working on the pumps, toiling away at them endlessly, as Steel Kilt talked merrily and poked a bit of fun at Radney. Oh, my voice! Oh, yeah, my working lies. This lively leak, this one here. Hold a container up to it. I, let me have a taste of that there. Oh, by lord, it's worth bottling. Oh, that Radney, he's part owner, ain't he? Hmm. I'm sure he'd be more than willing to make the extra buck. Ah, that Radney. Oh, he's a simple old soul, ain't he? A beauty, too. <laughs> Oh, here he comes now! As Steelkilt and friends uh, are hard at work on the chariot here, Radney approaches from behind and says, You four there. Why's that pump stopped? Keep on working. Oi, uh, aye aye, Mr. Radney. You heard him, boys? Uh, lively now, lively. Steel and crew worked harder than ever, absolutely toiling away at the pumps, their limbs ablaze and completely drenched in sweat. But this sort of work was not unknown to a sailor, and Steel was built for it, absolutely. Upon finishing their job, Steel sat down on the windlass, his face red and eyes bloodshot, panting and sweating profusely. Any man would have been very impressed and satisfied with his work at the pump. But something terrible possessed Radney, and in his jealousy, 
or whatever it may have been, he decided to pick up Steel Kilt some more. Radney approaches Steel Kilt, saying, Steel, stand up, sweep down the decks, get to it. I. Sir Radney, sweeping the deck is not my business, sir. I. I won't do it. I said get to it, man. But this was not a job for Steel Kilt. It was a job for the young green hands of the crew. Not only that, but... Look at the state of the man. It was terribly wrong and completely obvious that this remark for the mate was meant to physically sting and belittle Steel Kilt. He also commanded him to take care of some more terrible matters that will go unsaid. He may as well have spat in Steel Kilt's face. But he kept his coolness about him, Steel Kilt and he glanced up to the mate's eye and perceived there the heaped-up powder casks and the slow match silently burning towards them. That's right. Radney was ready to blow. Steel Kilt was not afraid of the man, but at the same time he did not want to push him over the edge unnecessarily. And so, Steel Kilt, most politely and in a very ordinary tone, told the mate, I won't do it, sir. Yes, you will. Now Radney seemed a man possessed. He snatched up a heavy hammer from the cask, pacing back and forth before Steel Kilt. Again, he reiterated his command. Over and over he commanded Steel Kilt, his temperature all the time rising. Again he commanded the shipmate, but this time with an oath, swearing that he must abide. At this point Steel Kilt begins to feel just a bit irritated and heated. He was still entirely out of breath from the miraculous work. He somehow smothered the heat within him still. He remained rooted to his seat, and Radney began dangling the hammer in front of his face, menacingly, repeating his orders. Steele rose and retreated, backpedaling around the windlass, with Radney right on top of him. Steele Kilt told Radney that he would not obey his orders, but Radney would not back off, and Steele began yelling at him waving him away, but the man was foolishly infatuated, driven by anger and jealousy. They circled the windlass two or three times in this fashion, before Steel Kilt stood his ground above the hatches and spoke calmly but stiffly to Radney. Mr. Radney, I will not obey you. Take the hammer away or look to yourself, man. Ah, but the poor mate was already destined and marked by the gods. He shook the heavy hammer inches away from Steelkilt's face, repeating his maledictions. Steelkilt began to carefully range his arm behind him, gearing up to release one incredibly powerful blow, should he need to. And he spat out at Radney. Mr. Radney, remove the hammer from my face. Back off. That so much grazes my cheek. I swear to you, sir, I'll murder you here now. As I said before, the fool had been branded for death, and the next instant his hammer touched Steelkill's cheek. And within the flash of a second, Radney was on the ground, his jaw stove into his skull, spouting blood like a whale.
The crew was up in arms. Yells came aft and fore, with everyone in absolute confusion. Steel knew hands would instantly be on him, so he shook one of the backstays. He was quickly joined by two comrades that slid down the ropes to land beside him. These two were described as canalers from the Erie Canal in New York. And though the canal is lined with many churches, these men were sinners. His comrades land beside him. All hands are crowding him, and his friends are yanking him towards the forecastle deck in the frontmost part of the boat. The captain was up in arms, and in the uproar was poking at the men with his whale pike and commanding Steele be taken into custody. But the three desperados were too much for the men. Steele and friends gained the forecastle deck, where they lay three or four casks along it, barricading themselves. Herman describes them as sea Parisians, referring to an event where French hid behind the barricades. The captain approaches with two pistols and roars. Come out of there! Turn to! Turn to! Steel Kilt leaped furiously upon the barricade. The captain's pistol aimed right at him. He strides back and forth on the casks coolly, knowing that if the captain shot him now, all hands would be thrown into a mutinous frenzy. Fearing in his heart this may be true, the captain lowered his guns, but made his command clear. He wanted them out now, and to instantly return to their work. But Steel Kilt was not one to be punished or reprimanded. Absolutely not. He would not have it. It seemed it was something he despised more than anything else. He would not be captured and flogged, but he would return peacefully to work if the captain promised not to punish them in that way. Turn to now! You promise not to touch us if we do! I make no promises! Do you want to sink the ship? Sink the ship? I let us sink! Not a man of us turns to unless you swear not to raise a rope yarn against us. What do you say, man? Steel Kilt patrols the barricade coolly, his hands behind his back, but keeping a careful eye upon the captain. He continues on. We didn't want it, Captain. It's not our fault. We didn't want it this way. I told him to take his hammer away. I told him. It was a boy's business. I told him not to prick the buffalo. I think I've got a broken finger against his cursed jaw here. Captain, by God, look to yourself. Say the word. Don't be a fool. Forget it all. We're ready to turn too. Treat us decently. And we're your men. But we will not be flogged. Turn to! I'll tell you what, Captain, rather than kill ye and be hung for a shabby rascal, we won't lift a hand against ye unless ye attack us first. But until you say the word about not flogging us, Captain, we don't do a hand's turn, aye, men? Down into the forecastle with you, then. Down you go, and I'll keep you there till you're sick of it. Down with you! Well, well, shall we, boys? Hurrah! The men growlingly disappeared into the forecastle, like bears into a cave. As Steele's head went below, the men leaped into the barricade and rapidly drew the slide over the scuttle as the steward brought the heavy brass padlock. The captain opened the slide a little bit, whispered something down to the men, and shut it up, turning the key upon them. 
It turns out that ten men in total had joined Steele's ranks of a mutiny. A tight watch was kept all night, in fear that the men would try to break out and do God knows what aboard the vessel. But all was peaceful for the first night. At sunrise, the captain went forward to the forecastle deck and summoned the men to work. But with one yell, they all refused. It makes us wonder about the captain, what kind of man he was, or is, whether he was abusive or not, uh, what caused Steelkill to take this stand at such an extreme, and his extreme destation of being flogged or punished. There really is so much here to think about, but... And so much that we're not let in on, left to speculation, which is really beautiful and interesting. But back to the main tale. Water was lowered to the men, and a couple of handful of biscuits tossed down into the darkness and dampness of the forecastle, before the captain again turned the key on them. Twice a day for three days this was repeated, but on the fourth morning there was a scuffle as the customs were delivered, and four men burst upon the deck, saying they were ready to turn to, to give in. The fetid closeness of the dank air down there, in that dismal forecastle, their famishing diet, and their fear of what would come of them, led them to give up and give in. The captain felt emboldened by this, and again reiterated his command to the rest, to turn to. But still shout out that they would not turn to. And on the next morning, three more mutineers bolted up and gave in, leaving only three men left down there, Steele and the canalers, his closest comrades aboard the vessel. At this point, Steelkilt began to somewhat lose his mind and became very impatient. Seven of his men had left him, and he was stung by the captain's mocking voice day in and day out. He was stuck in this black tomb. He and the canalers up until now had had one mind on the subject. They had decided the next day they would burst out of the hole, armed with mincing knives, and run amuck the ship, and by any devilishness of desperation, seize the ship. He was willing to do this himself, he said, whether they joined him or not. He would not spend another night in that den. But the two men accepted the scheme. They swore they were ready for it, or anything else worse. They were down for anything other than surrender. They even insisted upon being the first to fly out of the forecastle when the chance was given. But Steele objected to this, as he wanted to be the first out. As Steelkilt hissed at the men, telling them he wanted to be first out, and fell asleep, a switch flipped in the mind of the men. They realized that Steelkilt would lead them to the last, to their deaths most likely. So the two men, with the object in mind of gaining the captain's favor, betrayed Steelkilt and tied him by the hands and legs where at midnight they yelled for the captain and threw him tied onto the deck as an offering, hoping to secure their safety and freedom in the matter. As the captain heard the midnight shouts, thinking there must be a murder at hand, he took to the deck and sniffed the air for blood. The entire crew and mates were armed, all ran to the foredeck. Steel Kilt was thrust up, still struggling, and the two men at once claimed the honor of securing the man who had been fully ripe for murder, but... They were all collared and dragged along the deck like dead cattle, and were pulled up into the rigging, side by side, where they hung suspended in a web of lines. There they hung until morning. You villains! The vultures wouldn't even touch you! All hands were called as the three men hung beside one another, up in the ropes. The captain let it be known that he had a good mind to flog them all round, each and every one who had sided with Steelkilt. But since most of them had turned too decently, 
he'd let them go with a reprimand. But as for the three still hanging, this was not the case. And in a terrible, ferocious tone, the captain told the men that he was ready to do his bidding, and he means to mince them up for the tripods. He seizes a rope and applies it with all his angry might to the backs of the traitors until they yelled no more, but hung lifelessly with their heads dangling sideways. And Herman Melville writes here, as the two crucified thieves are drawn. Now take a moment here to think about the visual we are being offered. I want you to have a think about what we've discussed and heard and seen so far. Does the description I gave of Steelkilt not remind you of an idolist Christian figure? Does he not resemble the many depictions of Jesus Christ? And now here they are hung up with Steelkilt in the middle. The other two hanging loose beside him. In many depictions of the crucifixion of Christ, he's pictured on the cross between two other men who were deemed as thieves and also put to a similar punishment. Think about this, absorb it, and frame your own feelings upon it. As always, I offer my input and beliefs, but as Herman Melville would have wanted it, I believe, we make our own assumptions. I cannot help to think about the comparisons to the biblical story, which is something we've taken a deep look at while reading this story so far. It's happened already. Through the use of typology, we've been referenced the story of Jonah and the whale, Ishmael, Ahab, and Elijah, and much more. Just keep all this stuff in mind while we're reading. Now, the captain, outraged about his wrist being sprained with the work on the men's backs, he now points to steel kilt, ready to whip the man literally to death. The captain says aloud, All right! Take the gag from his mouth! Let us hear what he has to say for himself! Steelkilt's eyes flashed, and his head twisted round in a painful motion. His cramped jaws clenched. He hissed out the words, What I say is this, and mind it well, Captain. You flog me, I murder you. The Captain did not hesitate one bit. He drew back his rope to strike. As the captain's arm was pulled back, ready to thrash steel with the rope, Steelkilt spits out a terrible murmur of words unheard by all but the captain. And as he said this, the captain froze in mid-strike, his arm raised and the rope dangling. Steel's eyes were that of the captain's, and they stared into each other. Much to the crew's surprise, suddenly the captain shouts, Cut him down! Let him go! I won't do it! Cut him down! So quickly, the junior mates ran to begin slacking the lines to bring Steel down without being punished. What terrible words, maledictions, threats, or otherworldly phrases could have stopped the captain in his tracks this way? Was it something spiritual and profound? Or does Steel Kilt simply know something about the captain that nobody else does? This will remain a mystery to us readers, though there has been much speculation by professionals. But there was one pale man with a bandaged head and a wrapped jaw. Yeah, Mr. Radney, still alive, having laid in his berth in recovery all this time during the mutinous stand. Finally found the strength to rise had come upon deck just as the scene had escalated to its current threshold. Such was the state of the man's mouth that he could hardly speak, but he managed the words. 
Wait. Avast there, lads. You. The captain dare not strike you. But I will. You're a coward, Radney. Maybe so, but... Take this. So with his broken jaw, he snatched up the rope and advanced towards his imprisoned foe. The mate Radney was in the very act of striking, just as the captain was when once again Stillkill's eyes flashed and he hissed under his breath at Radney. And just like the captain, Radney froze mid-strike. But, despite the threat, whatever it was, Radney made good his word. Once the incident was over, the men were cut down, all hands were turned to work, and the pumps were rolled once more by the sullen sailors. But the crew who had mutinized would not again be accepted by the rest of the crew, so they were separated to a hold. Every man on board wanted the journey to end as abruptly as possible. All men wanted to maintain a strict peacefulness, and once they touched port, desert the ship instantaneously. But despite her leak, the captain maintained his constant watch for whales, and was more than willing to lower away. As Radney recovered, he too was more than game to change his berth for a boat, and I quote, with his bandaged mouth seek to gag in death the vital jaw of the whale. Unquote. Let us pause to appreciate the poetics of Herman Melville here. So, the men all kept to themselves for the most part, but Steele specifically kept his own counsel, especially concerning his proper and private revenge upon the man who had stung him in the ventricles of his heart. He was still in Radney's crew despite all this, and against the captain's counsel, Radney insisted on retaining his role as a headmate. So he kept a night watch with Steele and crew. Steelcoat sometimes witnessed Radney dozing while he sat on the bulwarks of the quarterdeck, leaning against one of the whaling boats that was suspended beside the ship. It was not difficult for Steelcoat to calculate his time of action, and he planned, during the next night watch at 2 a.m., to enact his revenge. Until then, he employed himself with braiding very carefully a certain kind of short rope. But as he ran out of twine, he asked the shipmate if he had any extra. The sailor answered in the negative. So Stilkilt goes directly to Radney and asks him for some twine to mend his hammock. When in reality, this twine would go into the weapon Still was crafting to take him out. Radney gave him the twine, and in the night Stilkilt put together a heavy round object with numerous parts of iron, wrapped in a pocket. It seemed he was going to attack Radney in the night with this stove's head and let him fall to the grave that was always ready dug to the seaman's hand. In the mind of Stilkilt, Radney was already stark and stretched as a corpse, a dead man walking. But my friends, the bloody deed he had planned would never come to pass. It seems heaven itself stepped in to take out of his hands and into its own the damning thing he was about to do. The very day still planned to enact his revenge, a sailor from Tenerife, up on the masthead, called out, There she rolls. Jeez, what a whale. The crew was absolutely frenzied. The white whale, the white whale. Ishmael here, in his reiteration, describes Moby Dick as a very white and famous and most deadly immortal monster. This instance, this instance recalls a strange fatality that seems to have been mapped out before the world itself was charted. Indeed, this was all meant to be, and already planned, says Ishmael. All the harpooners and mates were in no fear of rumors. They wanted that whale. And as the rest of the crew lay aghast at the giant white whale bounding in and out of the sea, in front of a shattered sun, the boats were lowered. Steel was to steer the boat that Radney manned. 
and if they were to dash the whale with a lantern and turn be towed alongside, it was still Kilt's job to steer, as Radney stood up next to him with his harpoon in hand. And so Radney sprung to the foremost part of the small boat as they approached the whale. His bandaged cry was this. Give way, men. Come on now. Get me to him. Beach me right on his back. Still Kilt abided and ranged towards the whale. Around it was a blinding foam and spray, blending two lights together. Suddenly, the boat struck as against a sunken ledge and keeled over. Out spilled the standing mate, Radney. Landing on Moby Dick's slippery back, he fell and slid off. The boat righted and was dashed aside by the swell, Radney being tossed into the nearby sea. As the whale sprayed, Radney attempts to swim away, and for an instant he was seen through that veil, wildly seeking to remove himself from the eye of Moby Dick. But, in one fantastic motion, the whale rushed round in a sudden maelstrom of seas, seized the swimmer between his jaws, and rearing up high with him into the sky, plunged headlong again and went down. Steel sits on the edge of the boat in silent awe. He slackens the lines, so as to drop away from the whirlpool. And as he looked on calmly, we're told that he thought his own thoughts. You can decide what those are for yourself. The line in the boat was still connected to the whale, and suddenly, it gave a mighty tug, the boat jerked downward. With no second thought, Sealkilt brought his knife to the line and freed the boat. As he looked up, at some distance, the whale rose once more, and in the teeth, or some tatters of Radney's red woolen sweater. All four boats gave chase, but the whale eluded them, until finally disappearing, until finally disappearing wholly. In good time, the town hall reached her port, a solitary place where no civilized creature resided. Steele and five other men deserted her quickly before taking a large double war canoe from some of the island's locals and setting sail for some other harbor. The captain, due to Steele and crew's extreme and violent nature, was forced to let them go, as they were in a land where no laws were abided to, especially being continents away. The townhouse company had been reduced to a handful of men, and the captain was forced to call upon the island's inhabitants to assist him in the labors of heaving down the ship to stop that leak. But such a great amount of work this was that, when it was finally complete, nobody was fit to go back out to sea. It seems the captain had no choice but to desert his ship and search for a crew. So he anchored far offshore, pointed his cannons towards the island, and lowered away with one man of his crew in the best whaleboat he had. He set a small sail for Tahiti, some 500 miles away. He sailed for four days when a large canoe was spotted by the captain. It seemed to be resting at a shallow island surrounded by coral. He steered away from it, but the savage craft saw him and gave chase. Soon the voice of Steelkilt hailed the captain to heave to, or he'd run his craft underwater. The captain presented his pistol, but the lake man was not afraid, and with one foot on each prow of the war canoe he laughed, threatened the captain some more. How in the world they had come to cross paths again is unknown, but Steelkilt needed to know where the captain was headed, and demanded it be shared with him. The captain responded that he was bound for Tahiti, 
for more men. Steelkilt hopped out of his war canoe, swam to the captain's whaleboat, and climbed up before standing face to face with him. He forced the captain, either by physical force or some other manner, to cross his arms and throw back his head, swear that he would beach the whaleboat on that small island, remain there for six days, and if the captain did not, Steelkilt swore that lightning would strike him down. With an adios, senor, he jumped back to his boat, having secured a fantastic head start on the captain. It seemed Steelkilt also had a mind to head to Tahiti, where luck befriended him. Two ships were about to sail for France and were in need of exactly the number of men that Steel was with. They embarked, forever far ahead of the captain and out of his reach. Had the captain had any mind to try to get them involved in the legalities of mutiny, he'd never catch up to Steelkilt. And so ten days after Steele left Tahiti for France, the captain showed up in his whaleboat, where he secured a crew of Tahitians, hitched a charter back to the town hull, and put a new crew to sail, before resuming their regular cruisings. Now where Steelkilt is now, gentlemen, none know. But upon the island of Nantucket, the widow of Radney still turns to the sea, which refuses to give up its dead, and still in dreams sees the awful white whale that destroyed him. What's that, friends? You want to know if the story I've spun is true? Is there a copy of the Holy Evangelist nearby, gentlemen? You know oh. a worthy priest nearby. You know a worthy priest nearby? Please, Please fetch, fetch him for me, me my fine friend. friend. Ah, hello ah, there. Hello. Uh, let me let remove, remove my hat. hat. No, no venerable priest. Further into the light. And hold the holy book before me so that I may touch it. So help me heaven, and on my honor, the story I've told ye, gentlemen, is in substance, and its great item is true. I know it to be true. It happened on this ball. I trod that ship. I knew the crew. I have seen and talked with Steelkilt since the death of Radney. Wow. What a final twist at the end there. So it seems Ishmael actually knows Radney in person and has spoken to him since then. So we alluded that at some point in the story we're going to meet Steelkilt ourselves, which is awesome. So be sure to stick around for that. Such a striking story, uh, this short townhoe. And uh, I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to life. So we're left with Ishmael swearing his story true by the Bible and a bit mysteriously stating that he's met Steelkilt since the incident, and even spoken with him. It's an incredible striking feature of the short story, and uh, all of its biblical references. There are many different angles and lenses this could be viewed through, Steelkilt resembling Jesus, and possibly having some sort of supernatural prowess, and yet, he seemed a man possessed and somewhat evil himself. It's hard to decide who is the villain or antagonist of this short story. There's also a lot we do not know. Has the captain been overbearing in the past? And overly abusive? Why is Steelkilt so incredibly against any sort of punishment? Where is Steelkilt now, and what of his run-in with Radney? It's all just amazingly put together, and I welcome you to ponder it with me. Go read through it yourself, it's an amazing read. I'd love to hear what you think of this portion of the story. A very huge, huge thanks to Jack Luna of Dark Topic and uh, 1159 Media 
an amazing production that produces a ton of incredible and award-winning true crime podcasts. They're always coming out with fresh ones for us, too. So, Jack, thank you so much for voicing Radney. The captain of the town hall was voiced by the knight's little brother. So much thanks to you, and all the listeners, of course, everyone who has supported me thus far. I truly hope you enjoy my passions and my work. Please follow and subscribe and review me on all platforms that you can. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date with me. So until next time, knights, go on. Drop your swords, pick up your pens, and reading spectacles. Let us read on.